Well, let's continue here and let's bow our heads for another word of prayer. Father in heaven, in our last session here, we want to pray for your spirit to be with us, that you'll guide our thinking and that you'll bless us, that we might uh, utilize the concepts we're learning here to win someone to you in Christ's name. Amen. Joe, I'm sorry, I forgot. I've got something for you. I want to give you a, um, a Hope Channel pen, and then if you'd like to keep up with the ministry of Hope Channel, just uh, raise your hand and Joe will give you a card, and then you can fill it out and give me the card back. And uh, we'll send you our newsletter, and if you'll pray for us, we would appreciate that. Okay, I think I am going to do this. You realize that what I'm presenting to you here is actually a 13-hour course at the Amazing Facts College of Evangelism. It takes me usually about 13 hours to do this. Um, you're not going to get all 13 hours, so you can relax. You're going to get just what we can present in the next hour. So I'm, I'm having to pick and choose here. Uh, we do have this on DVD, and we also have it in book form. But let's talk about thawing frozen churches. I think one of the most important aspects of winning someone is having a truly friendly church community to which to bring them. Now, I believe that this group here, the Advent Hope Group, what I've experienced thus far, it's a friendly, warm, inviting environment. Not all churches are like that, though. Have you ever been to a cold Adventist church? And I'm not talking about the temperature gauge on the wall, either. You go in, nobody talks to you. They don't know how to do church. They are as cold as ice, you know. Cold, unfriendly churches are like the person with bad breath. How? <laughs> They're like the person with bad breath. They're the only one who doesn't know. They're the only one who doesn't know that they have a problem. You see, I, I had a church that was a very cold, unfriendly church. And I had some people that I was bringing to church who said, you know, your church is not that friendly. And when I went to my board and I said, you know, we need to be friendlier. They said, what do you mean we need to be friendly? friendlier? We're already friendly. And they got very defensive. And as I started watching the dynamic, what I discovered is they were friendly. They were friendly with one another. They knew each other, they loved each other, and they were friendly. But a stranger would come in, and if the stranger came in, they just ignored him and acted like he or she didn't even exist. And I learned this in a very personal way when I invited a gentleman to attend church with whom I'd been studying for quite a while. Tim was, um, Tim was a successful businessman in town. He belonged to a church just south of the city, a very influential church. It was a church where the president of the United States at that time would go and attend church occasionally. And he was the, Tim was the equivalent of an elder in his church. So he was a leader in this very large, influential church in town. He came to some meetings I was holding, uh, some prophecy seminars in our city. He came, he could only come a few nights and he stopped coming. But I, I got acquainted with him in that little bit of time. While the meetings were just completing, I was walking through the downtown section and I met Tim on the street. And we, we talked a little bit and he said, yeah, I, I'd love to come. I'd love to learn what you're sharing there, but I don't have time. I run my own business and I just haven't had time. It's too busy right now. So uh, I said, well, Tim, would you like to get together for lunch sometime? And by the way, this is one of the best ways to begin witnessing is just go out and do lunch with someone. Eat lunch with them. You know, Jesus says in Revelation 3 that when we get to heaven, he's going to sit down and dine with us. 
And there's no better way to witness to somebody, I don't believe, than just getting together and start eating together. So I said, Tim, would you like to get together for lunch sometime? I'd like to get better acquainted with you. I, you're, I think you're an interesting person. I'd like to learn more about you, and, and maybe I can share some of the things that we've been doing in these meetings. He said, yes. Yeah. So we got to lunch, and out of that lunch, we began getting together for Bible studies, and we were studying every week. And we got to the point where uh, Tim became convicted of the Sabbath, but Tim wouldn't take a stand for the Sabbath. He, he knew it was what the Bible said, he was convicted. It was something that he needed to do. But he was a race car fanatic. He loved racing cars. He personally would race cars. And I'm going to tell you this story now because I don't think I'll get to the uh, place where I talk about this later in the seminar. But he was racing cars on the Sabbath. And one day, uh, as I was talking to Tim, I said, Tim, what is your goal? What are, what are your goals for your life and especially for your walk with God? And he thought, he said, man, that's a good question. That's a profound question. You know, that's what life is all about. What, what's your goal in life? What are you after in life? What do you want God to do for you? And he thought for a moment, he said, I'll tell you what, my goal is to be everything God wants me to be. Whatever God has in mind for me, I want to cooperate with that, and I want to be that. And I said, wow, that's a great answer. He's a sincere follower of Christ. And then I did this. I said, Tim... If your goal is to be everything God wants you to be and to follow him in everything that he wants you to do, then why in the world are you breaking the Sabbath every week? Now, I talked to you earlier about winsome witnessing. Let me tell you why I was able to say it that way. Because Tim and I had become like this. We'd become friends. And he knew that my objective was to help him fulfill his goals. You see, I asked him what his goals were. And when he said, this is my goal, and I had already established that he had told me, I believe the Sabbath is Saturday, and I believe God wants me to do it, then it was very easy for me as a friend to say, well, how are you ever going to get here when you're over here, going the opposite direction? And when I told him this, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, Tim, you've told me that you're convicted of the Sabbath, you believe it's Saturday, you believe God wants you to do it, but every Saturday, though you have an open invitation to come to church, you're out racing cars on the racetrack. How are you ever going to achieve your goals and God's goals for your life if you don't walk in the light he's given you? And he said, that's a good point. I'll be there next week. I'll be there next Sabbath. And he was. Now that comes out of the chapter on how to help people make decisions for Christ. But I share it with you now because we won't have time later. But notice it's in the context of the friendship that I have now gained permission to speak to his heart. I didn't speak to his mind. I spoke to his heart. And I said, that's where you want to be? How are you going to get there then? You need to follow God. And he made the decision. Now, back to the relevant illustration here for uh, thawing frozen churches. Tim comes to church. He comes in. He uh, goes through the church service. Didn't come to Sabbath school. Went through the church service. At the end of the church service, I'm greeting people at the door as the pastor. And he's standing over here in the foyer. And uh, eventually, you know, we talk a little bit. And then he leaves. The following week, he and I get together for our Bible study. And I said, Tim, well, tell me, what do you think church was like? And he, he said, do you really want to know? I said, yeah, go ahead. He said, well, he said, you know, the sermon was fine. I was blessed by that. But he said, well, instead of telling you about your church, let me tell you about my church. He said, if you were to come to my church, you would walk in the door. And by the, between the time when you walked in and when you left, you would meet at least 20 people 
that you would know their names, where they worked, what their interests were, whether you had anything in common. And you would feel like you met people that you could make friends with. He said, that didn't happen when I came to your church. And he said, do you know what it, what it means to leave your old environment and go out of that comfort zone and go to a church on a different day of the week? Do you know what that's like? He said, the whole time I was driving over here, I was thinking, what am I doing? Why am I going to this church? How are these people going to treat me? He said, I had all these conflicting emotions going on in my mind. And he said, I almost turned around. But he said, no, this is what the Bible says, and I am going to commit myself to doing that. And he said, good thing I made that commitment because I wouldn't have been back after going to your church. Now, this was the same church that thought they were a very friendly church, and they were friendly with one another. They did not understand how they were relating to the stranger in their midst. He said, you know, I walked into your church, and he said, the greeter said, happy Sabbath, and gave me a bulletin. And he said, and I discovered you must have some training on this, because everybody says happy Sabbath and not a whole lot more. Yeah, it's kind of like the parrot you train, happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath. And I, I've, I've got a little, uh, a little thing that I like to tell people. You know, we could dispense bulletins with a machine as effectively as we do it with greeters in most churches. You just put a smiley face. Well, in some churches you put a frowning face. But you put a face, nonetheless, on the machine. And it, it goes, happy Sabbath, spits out a bulletin. Happy Sabbath. Wouldn't that be an efficient thing to do? You wouldn't have to get greeters anymore. You know, you just put a machine in. I might make a lot of money selling that machine. Happy Sabbath, and spit out the bulletin. Well, that's the way, that's the type of greeters I had in this church. Happy Sabbath greeters. Nothing more. You know, hey, we're glad you're here. None of that. It's just happy Sabbath. Pass the bulletin out. Tim said he went into church and he said, yeah, you got this part in the service where you have people greet each other. He said, that's the only time anybody ever talked to me. He said, guy in front of me turned around and said, hi, my name's uh, Nathan. What's your name? And got a little bit acquainted. He said, that's the only time. Now, by the way, that church, certain factions in that church used to crucify me because I had the audacity to let people greet each other during the church service. They thought it was quite irreverent. It wasn't irreverent because it was done decently and in order. We didn't go racing up and down the aisles and shouting and screaming. We turned around and we did that later in the service. We didn't do it then. We would turn around and we would just politely greet each other. And so, uh, but that was the part where this fellow felt like he connected with a few people. Afterwards, he said, I went out in the foyer and I stood there. He said, everybody was having a great time talking, but nobody talked to me except you. And he said, you've got some work to do here. I said, I know I do. That's why you got to join this church. Come on. And he did, and he was a great blessing to us and helped us turn some things around. But we need to learn how to warm up as churches. And, and I think that we just don't understand what it's like to be strangers. And I think we need to get out of our cocoon sometimes and find out what, what it is like. I was in a church. I went into this church uh, to speak. I was, and as I was walking through the foyer, Sabbath morning, it's a rather large church. I was happy. Sabbath, I'm happy on Sabbath. Hi, how are you today? Happy Sabbath to you. And people would look at me like I was some foreigner. And they'd break eye contact and look away. So I smiled at another person and said, Hello, happy Sabbath to you. And they looked away. And I thought, man, something's wrong. You know, I got spinach between my teeth or something. I don't know. So I went in the bathroom. And no, I looked as ugly as I normally do. And then I said, well, It's not that. That's me. And so I went back out and I sat down in the foyer and I watched people's interaction. Here's what I observed. 
when somebody knew the, when they knew each other as they were approaching, if they knew each other, they would stop and talk. If they could not pull off that person's name, they may have seen them in church, but they couldn't pull up their name. They were afraid to make eye contact. They break eye contact. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you've met someone several times, you've gotten their name several times, and then you're thrown in a social situation where you're going to have to talk to them and you can't remember their name. Do you ever get embarrassed? I can't remember their name. Man. So you tend to avoid them. And this avoidance was going on like crazy in this church. And so here's what we did. I was counseling them on church growth. We put name tags on everybody. Changed the whole dynamic. Now it's like, oh, Mike, good to see you. How you doing? You know, you didn't know the name before the name tag. But he met them enough that the name tag enabled them to warm up. Other churches, what I've counseled them to do, because you don't always want to wear name tags all the time, is you do a pictorial directory, church directory. Hang it on the bulletin board. A new member joins your church, whether they're a transfer in or a baptism or profession of faith. You take a picture of them, post it on the board with the others. And so you see that person coming. Oh man, what's their name? I just introduced to them last week. You run over and you look at the board. You look at their name. John and Susan. Hey, John. Hey, Susan. How you doing? You know, some dunces like me forget names and you need that help. And a lot of churches, they're avoiding each other because of this. Another thing that I think that we could do that would help us warm up our churches is we need to learn conversational styles. Here's a simple outline. It's called FORT. You have probably have heard of this. F-O-R-T. You start off with family. When I meet someone, first thing I do is I do not usually ask them their name. I don't say, hi, what's your name? Because then that person feels like they're being interrogated. I'll walk up to them, I'll say, hi, my name's Gary. What's your name? And they'll give me their name. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Are you from around here? And I'll never ask them, oh, I'll never say, oh, I'm glad you're visiting with us. I did that one time as a pastor. Oh, I'm glad you're visiting with us today. I'm a member here. And now, and now I was going to try to dig myself out of the hole. I just dug it deeper and threw a little dirt on top as well. I said, well, good. I'm glad you're a member here. I'm so glad. And how long have you been attending here? Oh, 30 years. <laughs> well, I've been a pastor here about three years, so you're one of those inactives, aren't you? That's what I think, but I don't say it. So I never say I'm glad you're visiting here today. Oh, are you from around here? Yes. Oh, really? And then you, you can talk about family and, and what do you do here? I like to get in. So F is for family or from around here. Are you originally from here? Where are you from? How's your family doing? Tell me a little bit about your family. What type of work do you do? Your occupation. How long have you worked there? What's your religious background or for that? Uh, which church do you attend? I like to ask this first question. Do you normally attend here? That way you can find out if they identify with the Adventist church. Yes, I normally attend here. Do you normally attend here? Yes or no. I'm just visiting here today. And then the last thing would be testimony, where you share what Christ means to you, how you became a Christian, what your life has been like since becoming a Christian. F-O-R-T, very simple thing to do. I'd like to give you an assignment this week. Have some fort conversations. You might not get all the way through. The T, you might have a faux conversation or a four conversation, but don't have an F for your conversation. Do it. Go meet people, talk to them at church. Look for somebody you don't know 
and go get acquainted with them. I tell you, it makes a tremendous difference in people's lives. I was in this church I was pastoring, and I had two services, and I just come from the in 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 a two different cities. I had two church district. Came from one district, came over to the next church, and uh, they were already inside uh, starting the church service. And the only person we had in the foyer was a greeter. And I was getting ready to head up my secret route and sneak up on the uh, the platform. When in through the door in the foyer walks this gentleman. He's got blue jeans on, a t-shirt, and walking shoes. About a, probably a guy in his 40s. And he's out on a walk. And I walk over there. I say, hi, my name's Gary. What's yours? And he gives me his name, Charles. Hi, my name's Charles. I said, Charles, are you from around here? He said, no. And this was back on the East Coast. He said, I actually live in California. Great. What are you doing out here? He said, well, I'm in the Air Force. and I'm taking officer's training over here at the uh, Officer's Academy. And uh, I'm just out on a walk. And I'm walking by your church. And I see Seventh-day Adventist Church. He said, you know, my wife's a Seventh-day Adventist back in California. And I thought, well, I'm going to poke my head in there and see how Adventists on the East Coast worship. And I said, well, great. I'm glad you're here. Why don't you come in? We're just getting ready to start church service. You can slip in the back here and grab a seat. And uh, why don't you visit with us for a moment? He said, oh, no, I can't do that. He said, I'm not dressed for it. He said, I've got tennis shoes on, blue jeans. I said, listen, I'm the pastor here. I'm going to give you a special dispensation. You can do this. And if I could get away with it, I would look like you because you're the only comfortable-looking bloke in the whole building. You come in, and I'll look out at you, and I'll feel good about it. So come on in. And he smiled. He said, okay, I'll do it. So he came in. He slipped in the back row, preached a sermon afterwards and greeting people at the door. We had a fantastic church. There was only one, one way out of that church, and it was by the door I guarded. Don't you hate that sometimes? You just want to get by the pastor. You don't want to shake his hand. don't want to smile. You don't want to say hello. You don't want to tell him that was a long, lousy sermon. You just want to get out, you know? Well, I used to guard that and then make him smile, you know? And so, anyway, Charles comes out, and since he was on the back row, he came out pretty soon. I said, Charles, listen, I'm going to have a, we have some folks coming over to the house to eat lunch. We'd love to have you come. Well, yeah, he's a stranger. He doesn't want to be in a social, awkward situation with a bunch of strangers. And I expected him to say no, because that's what I would say too. And he said, no, that's all right. I said, oh, come on. We'd love to have you come. It's just going to be a small group. And I said, Bill, Bill is a couple people back in line. I grabbed Bill, pulled him up. Bill's coming over. And I said, this is Bill. Bill works for the uh, school system here. He's a counselor in the county school system. And uh, he recently started attending our church here. And he's going to come over. Bill, would you give Charles a ride if he'd like to come? And he said, oh, I'd be happy to do it. And Charles said, okay, I'll come. So he came over. What happened? The whole t- uh, He was there 8 to 12 weeks that Charles was in that city. Bill brought him to church every Sabbath. Somebody took him home every Sabbath to eat lunch. At the end of that 12 weeks, he went back home to California, Northern California, and he began studying the Bible. He'd been married to his wife for 20 years, had never looked into what Seventh-day Adventists believed, didn't go to church with her. He sent us a letter several months later, and he said, I want to thank you and your church for the hospitality you showed me because because of you, I am now studying the Bible and I'm going to be baptized next week. You know, I have his story in my book, Winsome Witnessing. He And I had not talked to him since that letter. He was reading his book. His wife actually was reading the book. And I don't use his correct name. I give him some other name. And she says, Charles, Charles, this has to be you. This has to be you. And they raised, yeah, that's got to be me. And so they tracked me down. 
He's a leader in his church today. He's an elder in his church today. Preaches and leads out in the church. That's the power of a handshake and a fort conversation. That's the power of it. If I would have just said, oh, there's a guy coming through the door and rushed up into the pulpit, he probably would have been overlooked. He probably would never come into the church. But because I took the time and because Bill and others took the time with him, Charles is an active member in God's church today. So you have people coming into your church all the time who are searching, who are looking. You need to have those type of conversations with them. I want to share with you chapter 5 out of Winston Witnessing. Here is a powerful concept that has changed my life. How to double God's joy. You know, Jesus said, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who converts. Luke 15, verse 7. My background has been in public evangelism. And I know that there's joy. Jesus joys in seeing souls redeemed by his sacrifice. But I didn't realize the power of one conversion. I was used to studying with lots of people, holding evangelistic meetings, baptizing crowds of people. But then when I got out of doing that full time, I started realizing something was missing in my life. I wasn't giving Bible studies anymore. I was in it more in administration. And I started feeling that Laodiceanism creep over me. And so I committed to the Lord. I said, Lord, you know, I'm missing something, and I think this is what it is. It's that witness to unbelievers. Please use me to win at least one person a year for you. I didn't have time to be winning a lot of people because I was traveling and I had a lot of other responsibilities. I said, Lord, help me to win at least one soul to you. Let me have Bible studies with somebody that I can lead one soul to you. And that was near the end of the year. We're getting ready to start a new year. And at the end of the year, I always like to do a a self-examination, spend some quiet time with God and say, Lord, what are your goals for me in this upcoming year? And it happened to be at that point in time that I was doing it. I went to church that Sabbath. It happened to be Christmas Sabbath. Christmas uh, fell on a Sabbath. New Year's also fell on the following Sabbath. And there in church, Christmas Sabbath, is a new guy. And I went up and I had one of these fork conversations with him discovered that his sister was a member of our church that I had actually baptized a few years before, but I was not the pastor of this church at this point in time when this guy comes. The following week, he's back at church. Again, I have another one of these conversations with him. The following week, I give him a phone call and invite him out to lunch. In the conversation, he tells me, he said, you know, this week's not a good week, I'm getting a divorce. Well, any week you're getting a divorce, I guess, is not a good week. So he was getting a divorce that week, his divorce was going to be finalized, he just wasn't up to going out to lunch. But here we are in this conversation, he's telling me about this painful divorce he's gone through, but he also opens his heart to me, and I think, yeah, I've just met this guy, he's opening his heart to me, that's a sign that he has some confidence in me, and I'll share with you in a moment how important a sign that is. And I said, you know what, one of the things I wanted to share with you at lunch was I wanted to tell you about some Bible studies I've got that have meant a whole lot to me. And um, they will open up the Bible to you. Would you be interested in looking at these studies and possibly doing them together? I'm looking for someone that would like to study the Bible together. I enjoy doing that. I grow from it. And I'm looking for someone who wants to grow as well. And he said, yeah, I'd be interested in it. We got Bible studies like that. Six months later... I had the privilege of taking him down into the baptistry and baptizing him. And I met him in our church. And so this fort conversation with him enabled me now to see God use me within a year to win one soul to him. 
Now, there's power in that one. There's personal power. It keeps you hot in the Lord. But there's also power for the church. And I want to uh, come down to this quote here from Mount of Blessing, page 36. People are not saved in masses, but as individuals. Personal influence is a power. When you think about winning souls for Christ, don't think in terms of the evangelist and baptizing 20, 30 people or whatever. Think about winning one to Christ and asking God to use you to win one. Because if you, you, if you win one and the next person in church wins one and the next person in church wins one, you can double your membership all by just winning one. There's definite power in there. Um, Paul followed this model. I love this text, 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul wrote Timothy, he said, The things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now watch the model here. I call it passing the spiritual baton. The Apostle Paul, he learns the truth. He shares it with many witnesses. These witnesses in turn share it with Timothy. Timothy now is commissioned to find faithful men to teach and commit the truth to who have the ability to teach others also. And so whenever we win one, we are then to train them to go out and win someone else. And if one wins one who wins one, you begin to grow exponentially. And that's what's wrapped up in this statement in volume A, the testimonies, page 47. Every addition to the church should be one more agency for carrying out the great plan of redemption. Watch the power of this concept of one. Let's say we have an evangelist who's a very effective, spirit-filled evangelist, and they can win a thousand people to Christ a day. Pretty effective, right? Then you've got the one who's following what I call the discipling method. They win one person a year, but then they train that person how to be a solidly fully solid, fully committed follower of Christ and how to go and win others. After the first year, the evangelist hasn't taken any time off. We're not going to give him a vacation. Wins 365,000 people. The discipler, on the other hand, has only won one other person. So there's two of them. The second year, the evangelist has 730,000. The discipler, who's discipled his convert, or her convert, they've each gone out and they've won one each. And when I do this, the person I'm studying with, I say, now you go out, who, who, who in your life would the Lord lead you to? And then I teach them as they're doing this and I'm doing it with someone else now. So we have four at the end of the second year. Third year, we have eight. The evangelist has 1.09 million. Fourth year, the evangelist almost at 1.5 million. We have 16. Fifth year, we have 32, the evangelist 1.82. The eighth year, we have 256 discipled new believers, the evangelist nearly 3 million. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you would like to see your church double and grow like this? How would you like to see 256 new members over the next five years? be pretty phenomenal, right? Now, I'd like to see 2.92 million, but let's start with 256. We'll get to the millions. You come out to the 23rd year, and the discipler has won 8.38 million people. The evangelist, 8.39 million in 23 years. Now, 24th year, we smoke them. We leave the evangelist sitting in the dust. We got 16 million. He only has 8 million. And the 25th year, we're up to 33 million. He only has 9 million. 
But in those 25 years, who has won the most amount of people on the discipleship side? It's the first person. And how many have they won? 25. One a year, 25, right? The second most productive soul winner is is the first person that was won. They've got 24 souls. So winning 25 people adds up to 33 million when you follow the discipling method, the spiritual baton passing that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 2.2. Now, I recognize that that's almost pie in the sky, but it's the idea that we should shoot for, and churches are doing this around the world. Volume 6 of the Testimonies were counseled that wherever a church is established, how many members? All the members should actively engage in missionary work. They should visit every family in the neighborhood and know their spiritual condition. If professed Christians had engaged in this work from the time when their names were first placed on the church books, thousands upon thousands would today stand with God's commandment-keeping people. And see, she doesn't say 10 and 20, but thousands upon thousands, exponential growth if everybody is out doing what God has called us to do. Now, there are churches that are doing this. Uh, several years ago, we were in, uh, a few years ago, um, 2001, maybe 2002, when I was still with Amazing Facts, we were in the Philippines holding meetings. You might remember when Pastor Doug Batchelor's son was tragically killed. He had to fly back from the Philippines and uh, come back to the States. And I was left to finish up the meetings, and I ran the, the rest of the meetings there. At the end of those meetings, 13,000 people were baptized. 13,000 people. Now you say, well, how do you win 13,000 people? By the discipling method. You see, what the Filipinos did before we got there is they all held meetings. All the members were out holding little Bible study meetings with people. And then what they did is they took their Bible studies and they brought them into what they called cottage meetings, into their living rooms. And then they'd have like five or six of them come together. And then they went through some more studies. Then what they did is they got several of these little cottage meetings together in another, like in a garage meeting where they'd have a little bigger venue. They'd put more people there. And then they would, one of them would preach to them. Then they held evangelistic meetings and then Amazing Facts came in and held the big meeting. And all that did was reap what they had already sown and nurtured and gotten all grown up real tall and nice and uh, bright and fresh fruit that you could just pluck. It was just right there because they had done all the essential work leading up to that. Well, we finished up those meetings. There was a guy uh, baptized in that series and I went back here, came back here to Modesto and we had some Filipino members in my home church and a year later they told me, hey, do you know this guy that was baptized during the meeting? And I happened to know him because I met him. He came up and talked to me. I said, yeah, I remember that guy. He said, well, he just held his first evangelistic series and 13 people were baptized during his series. He hadn't even been a member a year and he's already won 13 people. You see, so here, here's a culture where they take seriously reaching out. You know, every member involved in soul winning. And that's a cultural thing and a biblical thing that we need to do here. So I want to encourage you to make that type of commitment in your life. Make that as a covenant. Lord, use me to win one soul this next year. I think it's a fantastic time to do it. We're in the end of the year here. As you start looking at 2006, what do you want to accomplish next year? One of the most fruitful, rewarding things you can do 
is to say, Lord, use me to win one person to you. And start praying about that and asking the Lord to put people in your path that you can actually have that experience with. In fact, I want to jump down here this to uh, divine appointments. Chapter 7 and Winsome Witnessing. Remember Jesus when he met this fellow, Zacchaeus, up in the tree. He met him by chance. Had never met Zacchaeus before. Walks up to the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. This is a divine appointment. You know, God has those divine appointments for us. If you will pray for them, you will find them. One morning I was praying. I said, Lord, I need to find someone to study with this year. Will you please lead me to them? Help me to know who that person is when I meet them. Later that week, I was walking through the office supply store, and I walked past this lady that looked familiar, and I stopped, and I thought, man, I think I know that lady, but I couldn't place her. And I turned around. About that time, she had turned around. She was thinking the same thoughts. I know that guy. Where do I know him from? And I said, you know, you look familiar. And she said, you do too. And so we started talking, and she had attended church one time, one time. And I happened to be the pastor at that church at that time, and I had visited her at her work, she was going through a divorce at the time. She was hoping church would help uh, mend her, her relationship with her husband, and it didn't, and they split up. She was raised in Advance, left the church when she, as soon as she got out of high school, and now she was trying to come back to church. But since her family broke up, she never came back. Now she was remarried. And, and she said, you know, I, I, well, I invite her. I said, you need to come over to church. I said, I'm not pastoring there anymore, but we got a great pastor. You ought to come over and, and hear him. She said, well, you know, my new husband and I, we are looking for a church. We were just down at the Adventist Book Center. And we got a bunch of books, and we want to read up on what Adventists believe. She said, you know, it's so long ago for me, I don't even remember. And he's interested in looking into us. Well, that's great. I said, you know, I've got a little hobby I do, something I enjoy doing. I have Bible studies like I like to share with people. I find it keeps me fresh in the Lord, and I learn from people, and they learn something from the studies. Do you think your husband would enjoy this? She said, well, let me talk to him. Well, we ended up getting Bible studies together and ended up baptizing that couple, and they joined the church. That was because I prayed for a divine appointment, and the Lord gave it to me right away. So I think that often we will not have these unless we pray for them, and you find the relationship. Let's, uh, I want to talk to you now about where do you find people who are looking for the Lord. I'm a scuba diver. Any scuba divers here? Anybody like to scuba dive? Do you dive out here in the Pacific? It's cold. You do? It's cold, isn't it? You wear a big, warm, wetsuit. I'd have to have a dry suit. I don't like the cold. I learned how to dive in the Caribbean. I, I like the Caribbean. But anyway, I love scuba diving because there is a vibrant life under there if you're at a good place. You know, fish are just prolific. They're colorful. It's beautiful. It's quiet. No cell phones. No pagers. Nobody can talk to you. Nobody can interrupt you. The only thing you hear is the sound of your bubbles as you exhale. And that, you want to make sure you hear that. That's a very good sound to have when you're down underneath the water. My wife and I were scuba diving in uh, Panama City, a shore dive. Uh, Panama City has a wonderful park there called uh, Andrews State Park. And they have this jetty that juts out, a rock jetty, where they've piled all these rocks, a huge jetty, 60 foot deep at the base of that jetty, juts way out into the water there. And there's a symbiotic relationship between the fishermen and the scuba divers. The scuba divers scuba dive along the rocks there because it's a great place for all the fish. And the fishermen like to fish up there because it's a great place for all the fish. 
But it's interesting as you're diving along there and you see a monofilament line coming down through the water and you see this little bait fish like I did that day I was diving. And I can be a little mischievous from time to time. And as I was diving along there, there were no fish to be found. There were no fish around. I thought this, and it was the first time I was diving that place. I thought this is a boring place. And then I saw this fish. His side caught the reflection of the sun. I saw this little glint and I motioned my wife and we went over there and we looked and here was this little fish, but he was on his side. He was a little bait fish, shiner. And that's why I could see the reflection of the sun off his side. Well, as I looked closely, I saw this fishing line going up to the surface and I saw a hook. And then my eyes got real bright like they are now. I thought, let's have some fun. Told my wife to back away and I took my hand. I had a glove on it. And I grabbed the guy's line, and I went like this, real hard, and I let go. And boy, I saw that flit fish make its way to the surface real fast with the hook in him. That fisherman was up there reeling it in as fast as he could. Well, my wife and I continued our dive, and it was quite an interesting dive. We hit a monstrous current and had to abort the dive and ran out of air, came up, and had to walk back down the jetty. Uh, <laughs> and on my way down the jetty... We found out that only one fisherman had gotten a bite that day because you see this current was coming through. All the fish were out of the current way back in this little cubby hole in the rocks. They weren't anywhere near any of these fishermen's lines because they were fighting, they were getting out of the current. And so this one guy, they said, yeah, that guy down there, he had a bite a while ago, but he wasn't able to reel it in. <laughs> I tried not to smile. <laughs> So I looked real guilty carrying all my gear back down down there. Uh, Jesus said that he would make us fishers of men. And a lot of people have their lines in the water where the fish just don't exist and where the fish aren't biting. I've got a friend who's a real good fisherman. He was holding an evangelistic series with me one time where I was pastoring. And the late, all his illustrations were about fish. And so this lady said, you like to fish? He said, oh, yeah. She said, listen, come out to my place. She said, I'm the caretaker for the Winn-Dixie Ranch. If any of you are from the east, there's a big uh, big grocery store chain called Winn-Dixie out there, and they had a ranch. Every All the water faucets had the WD Winn-Dixie brand on it. It was everywhere. This guy had WD all over his house. But he also had a huge, huge pond overstocked with bass, big mouth bass. And the game and fisheries people said that they had to get a bunch of those bass out of there if they were going to keep the pond healthy. And she told this friend of mine, she said, come out and fish the bass, get the bass out. He said, oh, great. So I went with him. We threw in our line, threw in our line, and bang, we caught a bass. We're reeling two, three, five-pound bass in. Now, if you're a fish lover and you love animals and you'd hate to hurt them, don't talk to me. That's all right. I had a guy come up and say, that hurts those poor little fish. They have nerves in their mouth. Yeah. Well, so does dying in an overstocked pond as well. I'm sorry. You just got to take care of them. So we fished them out and gave them to the uh, caretaker. Now I sound really heartless, don't I? But anyway, I was really helping those poor fish by killing them, you know. I was helping the pond. The greater good. So anyway, the, uh, the guy went and ate the fish that we fished out, that we gave to the caretaker. But then the fish started spawning, and they were having their, their babies laying their eggs. And when, apparently when the fish do this, they sit on the nest, and they guard their eggs. So I didn't know anything about the fish. All I knew was they weren't biting. And that's boring. I don't like fishing if they're not biting. It was very, very boring. And I told my friend, let's get out of here. It's no fun. He said, no, they're spawning. He said, it's that time of year. And he said, I'll tell you where they're going to be spawning. He looked at the place. He said, over here, this is where they're going to be spawning. 
And he said, here's the type of bait you put on. You put on a bottom bait. He said, like a little plastic worm. And you drag it across the bottom until you find the fish nudges it. And what happens is you're dragging it across their nest and it irritates the mama fish and she she pops it off the nest with her nose. So that's where you know the mama is. And you see, keep, this is really going to get bad. <laughs> you keep dragging it across the nest until the mama gets so mad she bites that bait. Boom! And then you reel mama in. And then you really have taken care of the fish population. You got rid of her eggs too. Now I know I sound really bad. Here's my point though. Don't miss the point. The point is this. He knew where the fish were and he knew how to catch them. And if you're going to be successful in fishing for men and women for Christ, you got to know where they are and what they're interested in. Because you can spend a lot of time trying to reach people that they're not ready to be reached. So let me talk to you about favorite fishing holes for soul winners. We spend, as a church, a lot of money on Christian media. We have Hope Channel, 3ABN, It Is Written, Voice of Prophecy, Amazing Facts. Millions of dollars are spent on media. And lots of people are watching. But as they're watching, they then enroll in the Bible course. Do you know what happens to those people? When they graduate from the Bible course, where they get the literature the ministry sends out to them, their name is then sent to the local church closest to their address. And the church is supposed to follow up on that. How many of you were aware that that's the process? Let me see your hands. A few of you were. Most churches never follow up on those cards. I've been to numerous churches where I've gone in, I've said, Show me your media interests. And they'll say, oh, we got them here somewhere. And they'll pull out a drawer and they'll fish all these cards out. Here they are. These are people who've shown an interest in what we're teaching. And you can follow them up. In the book, Winsome Witnessing, I have a little thing, a survey that I do with them. And it works. You simply go by their house or call them up and say, hi, I'm a representative with uh, It Is Written or Voice of Prophecy, whoever they responded to. And I'm going to be going to be in your area visiting people who've watched the program. And I've just got a simple four-question survey. Do you mind if I just drop by for a short visit? A lot of these people will say, fine. You drop by, you go through the survey. In the survey, you find out what they're interested in. And then you offer them Bible studies. I did this with one lady, and she told me, she said, I have been waiting for you folks to come by. She said, the Jehovah's Witnesses have been here, the Mormons have been here, and I've been waiting, telling them no, waiting for you folks to come. And she was ready to study and ready to become part of this faith community. So those people are out there. Church visitors canvas, as I mentioned earlier, we have people coming through our churches all the time. We need to reach out to these people. I love what one church does. What they do, their greeting committees, they bake, they bake a banana bread. And they have these fresh loaves of banana bread. And if you're a visitor at that church, you come through the door, they find out that you're their guest, they're your guest, they give you a loaf of banana bread. You know, I, I hate it when I go to church and you're sitting in the audience as a visitor and they say, do we have any visitors here? Yes, you, you, you in the blue shirt, the yellow tie. Please stand, tell us your name, your address, where you work, your social security number. Yeah, that embarrasses people to be put on the spot. You know, the number one fear people have, the number one common fear is public speaking. Number one fear, standing in front of a group of people and talking. And what do we do to these people that come into our church? We make them stand up in front of a group of people and tell us what their name is. We put them right on the spot. It's the worst thing to do. What this church did, though, is it would give their guests a loaf of banana bread. Everybody knew who the guests were. 
We're glad you're visiting with us today. Could I have a slice of your banana bread? <laughs> and so that's an effective way to greet your guest. And then I asked them, I said, well, do you ever follow that up? They said, no. I said, I'll tell you what I would do. I'd bake another loaf of bread and go by their house and say, I got something for you and give them another loaf of bread and build that relationship. And I talk in our book about how to uh, work with visitors, church visitors. Former and inactive members. There are a lot of people that never darkened the door of the Adventist church who grew up in the church or once attended church and they never come to church. And I have visited these folks. You know what they tell me? No one has ever come to see me. And they find it very, very painful. I was in a church where they were going through a very painful experience. Uh, married couple in the church having marital problems, and one of them uh, got into an adulterous relationship with another member of the church. They had a business meeting. You want a well-attended business meeting? Have an adulterous affair. Everybody comes out. They all came out. The, uh, the gentleman, the innocent party, the innocent man, it's his wife, pregnant by another man. They're getting divorced. The church is going to disfellowship this couple. The innocent man, he's innocent. He's not going to be disfellowshipped. He hasn't been to church in the last year either. None of, none of the three have been to church. As we came through the church door that night, this innocent party is handing out quarters to people. Rolls and rolls of quarters to every member coming through the door. Everybody sits down. And they start the proceedings to talk about this. This guy is sitting right next to the guy that got his wife pregnant. He gets up. He says, Pastor, can I speak? The pastor says, yeah. He says, you know, we know what we're all here for. He said, but I want to tell you something. He said, I love my ex-wife. He called her by name. And he said, what she needs right now is compassion and mercy. And I don't know what you need to do about this, but what she needs to know beyond it all is compassion and mercy, and you need to win this couple. And he said, let me tell you, I gave each of you a quarter when you came in. Here's why I gave you a quarter. He said, I haven't attended here since this whole thing started in my family. He says, it's been about a year now that I hadn't been to church. And you know what? He said, nobody in this church has even called me. Boy, you could hear a pin drop. He said, you know what a phone call costs? A quarter. And he said, you all have a quarter now. Next time you see somebody stop attending church, use it. Give them a call. It might make a difference in their life. That was a powerful, powerful message. And he pled with that church. It only cost a little time, a little money to call someone. And here he was wanting that call. And he said, I wanted somebody to call. I wanted somebody to talk to me. But nobody ever reached out to me. Now, yes, he could have called us, but that's not the point. We should have been calling him because he was missing. And there are a lot of former inactive members that it's very easy to reach out to them. Uh, I give a survey in the book, Winsome Witnessing, and that survey works. I did not originate it. I learned it from someone else, and I couldn't believe it. I thought, I didn't grow up in Adventist, and I don't, know what it, I don't really know what it means to backslide in that way and become inactive. But I know what happens when you go out and visit these people, and you take them through this survey, and in that survey, you introduce them to Jesus Christ and ask them if they want to give their heart to Jesus. You see lives change. And that's what a lot of former inactive members are wanting. They're wanting to see Jesus. Another method that uh, you can use to reach out to people is mail out a Bible study offer card. 
I like this card, the Something Wonderful for You. There are different versions of it. But I send it out in the community. I like to do this before an evangelistic meeting. I'll send 10,000 out into the community. And people say, yeah, I'd like Bible studies. They fill it out, send it back in, and then we follow up on those cards and give them Bible studies. Do this before every evangelistic meeting. And that, uh, the, what we say to these people when we follow up on it, there's a whole survey in Winsome Witnessing for that. Another thing to do is have a community religious survey where you go door to door and ask people certain questions. We have that survey in the book. Our circle of influence and letter to family and friends. What this is, is people that you know, people within your circle of influence. How do you reach out to them? I've got an approach for uh, reaching out to these people and win some witnessing. And essentially what it is, is if you're learning, if you want to learn your Bible better, you can say, I'm taking a course on how to learn my Bible better. And part of the course is to share Bible studies with someone else. Will you help me with this assignment in this class? And you'll find people that you know, your family and others, will help you with that because you're asking them a favor who would never take a study from you any other way. It's actually quite a simple method. It's the method Jesus used with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He asked a favor of her. Because he asked a favor of her, she returned the favor, and she was led to Christ. And so when you ask a favor of people, they tend to open up more rather than if you're uh, trying to convert them. They feel like you're trying to convert them. And then there's door-to-door work that you can do. We talk about door-to-door surveys. And then there are our children. I think our children are often neglected, that we just assume that they're going to accept Christ by osmosis and uh, find him. Oh, boy, that skip, hey, I can't skip this. I've got a great picture of children in here. I don't know why I skipped this. There, my children. That's Carissa on your right and Christina, the movie star, on the left. She loves her sunglasses. We think our children are just going to assimilate the truth by osmosis. It doesn't happen that way. We have to intentionally work with them and bring them to Jesus Christ. You can grow up in a Christian environment. As they say, you can be born in Loma Linda, eat veggie foods all your life, work for the Adventist church, be baptized in Adventist. Send your kids to Adventist school, be buried in an Adventist cemetery, and be lost, be unconverted. You know, but think you're saved because you're in this environment. Our children need to be brought to Jesus Christ, and they can understand the truth. You can study the truth with children and bring them to Christ. Carissa, she talks, the other one grunts. Uh, but Carissa has, talks in full sentences and understands a lot. Carissa understands tremendous concepts about the Lord. Tremendous concepts. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I had to punish her. And one of the punishments that we utilize is we remove privileges. She'd rather a spanking than to lose her privileges because privileges are her desserts. <laughs> she loses privileges like dessert. And so she lost her privileges, lost her desserts. I didn't realize it at the time when she lost her privileges that we were having some special company in that weekend and we were going to have dessert. And I just couldn't, couldn't do it. I couldn't have her sitting at the table, not eating dessert, and everybody else eating dessert. And I said, Carissa, you know, we've got company coming over, and you've lost your privileges for several days here. She said, the solemn look on her face. I said, but I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you grace. 
You know what grace is? I said, no, I don't know what grace is, Daddy. I said, do you want me to explain it? She said, yeah, tell me what grace is. I said, grace is dessert. Really? She, I said, yeah, what's going to happen here is you're not supposed to get dessert, but because we're having company and I don't want you to be left out, I'm going to let you have dessert. And that's grace. I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. She was ecstatic. She was so happy. And I said, and that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. You know, we don't deserve eternal life. We deserve death because we've all sinned. And we deserve to die, but Jesus has given us grace. He died for us on the cross. By the way, when we're driving down the road and she's getting sleepy, she'll say, Daddy, tell me a story. I'll say, what story do you want, honey? She'll say, tell me the story of the cross. I'll say, where do you want me to start? She'll say, start in Gethsemane. Start in Gethsemane. And I'll start the story, and if I stop, she'll say, no, Daddy, you've got to tell me the rest of it. Continue on. We go all the way through to the resurrection. So she understands that crucifixion. So I said, this is what grace is. And she caught it. She said, Jesus, dying for our sins, that's what grace is? I don't deserve this dessert, but you're going to give it to me? I said, that's right. I said, it's like that song we sing, her favorite song, Amazing Grace. And so when I walked away from her, she starts singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. You know, and she starts singing that song. Now she pulls that one on me from time to time. <laughs> Last week, Grandma and Grandpa were flying into town, and she was on restrictions, no privileges, until Friday. She said, but Daddy, can you give me grace? <laughs> not this time, honey. Not this time. Jesus is going to give it to you, but I'm not going to. So she was on restrictions. But our children can learn the truth. What I want to invite you to do is to take one of those fishing areas and say, I want to fish for souls there. Maybe it's being a greeter here at Advent Hope. Maybe it is visiting your neighbors. Maybe it's a family member. But say, I want to be used to reach out in that one area. And I think we should have teams. I think in every church there ought to be a group of people who visit church visitors, who work with them. I think there ought to be a team of people that go after those who are watching our media programs. And each one of these areas ought to have people that have a, a team center around who are passionate about doing that. You've got a tremendous outreach opportunity coming up with the uh, sanctuary that starts, what is it, next Friday? November 4. Okay, so, so two weeks away, essentially. November 4. That's a lot of work. But you develop relationships as you're taking people through there and you meet them. And don't just do the routine thing. Look for people that you can get acquainted with. And it's going to be hard because there's a lot of people there. But as you get acquainted with people, let the Lord lead you, you might find relationships sparked that lead to souls who give their lives to Jesus Christ. Now, in the last few minutes here, I want to cover this chapter, chapter 9, because this is such a practical chapter. Jesus' method works. I'm going to go through this quickly, because you have probably been exposed to this. But I want to give it my little twist here. From the uh, Review and Herald articles, March 30, 1905, we read, Learn from Christ the science of soul saving. Now, you, you should know what science is, especially if you're a medical student. What's a science? Help me out, because I might not know. What's a science? Okay, science is something that if you do certain things, you get predictable results, right? Supposedly. That's a science. Sometimes it doesn't always turn out that way. But, you know, 
It's like a mathematical equation. You know, one plus one always equals two. And there's a science to soul saving. That means there's a formula to it. And that formula, I believe, is delineated in Ministry of Healing, page 143. Let's read it. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. Now watch the signs here. First, he mingled with people as one who desired their good. He socialized with them. There's a great book. It's not, I don't think it's published anymore, but you probably can still pick it up in the used bookstores. Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, written by Becky Pippert. Out of the salt shaker into the world. Jesus said, ye are the salt of the earth. But what good is the salt if it stays in the salt shaker? You know what happens? It loses its savor. It clumps together. It becomes useless. And as Adventists, sometimes we like to clump together in the salt shaker. We need to get out of the salt shaker and into the world where lost people are. I came under conviction of this one time where I realized that all my friends were Adventists. My co-colleagues were Adventists. I, all my recreational things were done with Adventists. Everything was Adventist, Adventist, Adventist. And I thought, I've got to change this. I've got to get out where other people are. And so I start taking up other hobbies like scuba diving and getting out where I was going to meet real people on their turf and I could make friends with them like Jesus would. He socialized with them, mingled with them. While we should cultivate sociability, let it not be merely for amusement, but for a purpose. There are souls to save. Then he showed his sympathy for them. He sympathizes. He got acquainted with their, their uh, feelings. He would show his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs. As he learned their needs, he would serve them. He'd find some way to take care of them. And then he won their confidence. Now let me show you how I think this goes together. I believe that winning confidence is the byproduct of socializing and sympathizing and serving. That winning confidence is not a separate step in itself, but is actually the to sum of socializing, sympathizing, and serving. Now, winning confidence is very important to winning souls. Because before somebody will follow you, which was Jesus' next step, then he bade them follow me. Before anybody will follow you, you first need to have won their confidence. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Evangelist is coming to town. Pastor or somebody stands up front in the church and says, Evangelist is coming to town. We're going to have meetings. Take these brochures and invite people to the meetings. And so you go to your colleague, you go to your neighbor, whom you've never spent any time doing any socializing with or anything else, and you go and say, Evangelist is coming to my church. Why don't you come to my church? People aren't stupid. They know what you're up to. That's like inviting a fish to a fisherman's seminar. Or inviting a fish to a fish fry. You know, evangelists come into town. I'm not a member of their church. They want to convert me. I have visited with people when I'm trying to get Bible studies, and they'll say, why do you want to study with me? And I'll say, I want to study with you because I find studying with people enriches me and I found that people, other people are blessed by. And if I can help you learn how to interpret your Bible for yourself, then I'll have accomplished my goal. And they'll say, great, I'll study with you. 
And I believe that if I can help a person understand the Bible for themselves, God will lead them to the church He wants them to be in. I don't have to do it. God will do it. The force of the Holy Spirit, the conviction from His Word will do it. But you have to win confidence before somebody's going to take a major step, a life-changing step. And so the way you win confidence is you've socialized, you've sympathized, and serve, then you can invite them to take Bible studies, then you can invite them to the evangelistic meetings, invite them to church or whatever it is. I, I actually was taught this by my non-Christian neighbors. About this time that I came under conviction that I needed to get out in my community more, we were moving to a new house, and my wife and I knelt and prayed, and we said, Lord, please use us to win our neighbors. We've never done this before. We've won people by giving Bible studies, who have sent in cards or been watching our media programs, but we've never won our neighbors before. So we moved to this new house, and we meet the neighbor on the left side, and this guy has a brace holding up his neck, and he comes over, he says, hi, my name's Gary. Well, we've got something in common, at least our names are the same. Then he said this, he said, listen, if I never talk to you the whole time you live here, don't be offended, that's just me. But wow, this guy's going to be hard, you know, he's going to be tough. Then I met our neighbor on the other side, Jack. Jack said, hi, my name's Jack. He said, my wife's over in England spending all my money. Ha, 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 he laughs about it. And uh, that was actually, I found out that was true. <laughs> Betty's a shopaholic, the queen of shopping. And she, she revels in that title. Anyway, Betty was gone spending all the money. Jack said, listen, he said, I'm retired Air Force and I'm disabled. I've, I've had a quadruple bypass. And he said, you know, I like to get exercise. And he says, I used to mow the lawn of the people who lived here before. And he said, I don't charge anything for it. I just like to do it for exercise. So I'd like to mow your lawn. I had pictures of this guy with his quadruple bypass dying on my front yard. And I had just bought a brand new lawnmower. I said, no, Jack, that's, I really appreciate that. It's very gracious and kind of you, but I can mow the lawn. That's, that's fine. He said, no, I really like to do it. I mow all these lawns down the road. And he's just a, a workaholic, likes to be doing things. And he said, I'd really like to mow your lawn. And he said, I don't charge anything for it, don't want anything for it. I just like to do it. In fact, what it was, he didn't like a sloppy neighbor. He wanted a nice manicured lawn next to him. And so I kept saying no, and he kept insisting. Now I thought, man, silly me. Guy wants to mow your lawn, let him mow your lawn. That's one less thing to do. I said, okay, Jack, you can mow the lawn. And so he starts mowing the lawn. The first time he mows the lawn, my wife and I are in our bed Sabbath morning and we hear the lawnmower up and down the yard. Sherilyn said, what's that? I said, I think that's Jack mowing the lawn. She said, you didn't tell him about the Sabbath? I said, no. She said, what are you going to do? I said, you're going to go tell him. She said, not me. I'm not doing it. I thought, you know, man, if I go out and I tell this guy, I don't know him, he might be easily offended, and then I'll, I'll lose it right here. And so for one time, I was smart. I prayed. I said, Lord, you know, you can tell Jack not to mow the lawn on Sabbath, and if you, if you will do that, that'd be great. If you want me to do it, I'll do it, but I'm going to pray and let you do it first. So he finished mowing the lawn. It was a risky thing to do because I lived on a major thoroughfare that half the members drove past my house on the way to church Sabbath morning. Oh, the new pastor, he's getting his lawn mowed on Sabbath. So, uh, so we prayed about it. He never mowed the lawn again on Sabbath. 
Never mow the lawn again on Sabbath. Jack was a servant. He, he still is. He's got a servant's heart. He likes to help people. Mowed my lawn. My wife would come home from grocery shopping. All the groceries. I'd be in my home office overlooking the front yard, working away. My wife, she's young, she's healthy, needs exercise, carrying the groceries in. Jack would see her and come out and carry the groceries in for her. Make me look bad. So I'd get out and bring groceries in. We'd talk. And he was always constantly doing this, helping us with different things. And he was serving us. And um, one day we, we got home, drove up to the house, and there was Betty, his wife, at the front door, just knocked on the door, sobbing, just crying. Betty, what's wrong? She said, Tinker died. So they had this poodle, old poodle, ancient poodle, fat poodle, very fat poodle. Jack would go to Hardee's and feed this poodle sausage biscuits. The dog needed the health message. Jack really needed the health message. So the dog was fat and obese. And anyway, the dog died. Probably coronary problems. Dog dies. And Tinker was part of the family. Betty's weeping, crying. She says, Tinker's died. And uh, she said, I know he's in doggy heaven. And I said, can I pray for you, Betty? You know, this was not a time to give her a Bible study on the state of dog and death. What happens to doggies when they die? Talk to her about doggy heaven. It wasn't time for that. So I said, can I pray for you? So we prayed. And I said, Lord, you know Betty loves Tinker, Betty and Jack. I know they're grieving right now. And, and uh, I just pray you'll comfort their hearts. And that one day, according to your will, that you will just... Uh, Reunite them with Tinker. I'm sorry, I had to say that. I've got some unique doctrines. If there's going to be dogs and cats in the new earth, why not? Hey, I had a Christian dog one time. <laughs> anyway, so beyond that, you just, you just forgot everything I said today after that one. So we prayed. When she went back to her home, I had one of these aha moments. I thought, you know what? We are at the one confidence level that this lady would come over to my house with her deepest grief of the moment and weep and cry and share her grief with us, we have one confidence. The next week, I said, Betty, Jack, we've got a special thing going on at our church. We had a, a, uh, a special uh, visitor's day. We called it a high attendance day. Love for you to come. Will you come? They said, yeah, we'll come. Of course they were going to follow me. If they came over and shared their tears with me, they're going to follow me to church. They came to church. After that church service, they said, Gary, we want to join your church. Had never had the first Bible study. Did not have a clue what we believed. They wanted to join our church. Why? Because they had been following Jesus' method. They had been socializing with me, sympathizing and serving me. And I had said, follow me to church. And they came and God won them and they joined the church. Simple method. But it's Jesus' method, and it works. And if we're winsome, we will win some to Jesus. Now, I wish we had time this weekend, and we don't. But I'm going to invite you to look up the book, Winsome Witnessing. It's got everything I know in there, which isn't much. It's only 120 pages, I think, actually. <laughs> but get that book. If you're interested in refining your outreach abilities. I'd like to encourage you, if you haven't gotten it, to get it, seriously. 
Because things I've learned by making mistakes, you don't have to make the same mistakes. What do you say now after you've made that friend? How do you, how do you have Bible studies? What Bible studies should you use? What things work, what don't work? How do you help people make a decision for Christ? How do you help them when they learn about the Sabbath and they've got some difficult decisions to make there? What do you say? What do you do? It's all there in Winsome Witnessing. Also, you can get the DVDs where you'll hear all my same stories that I just showed you, shared with you today. Uh, you can get those from Amazing Facts or you can uh, get them from Seminars Unlimited. And then there's another book, uh, Winsome Studies in Prophecy, I like to use Bible prophecy. By the way, I'm not selling here. I'm giving you resources. This is, uh, if you want to find out what these costs and all, we can talk about that later, but I'm telling you where to get them. Winsome studies in prophecy. I find that prophecy is the most convicting when I'm studying with someone. If I'm studying what I consider a topical Bible study where I'm just jumping from one topic to the next and they're kind of disjointed, it doesn't help people truly understand the relevance of this message. The Sabbath is presented just as another day. The Sabbath outside of the context of prophecy doesn't make sense to a lot of people. But when you present it in its prophetic context, when people learn the Sabbath, they say, oh yeah, yeah, Shannon just moved from Wichita, studying with a guy I mentioned last night. very, very sharp fellow, businessman, knows every reason why you shouldn't keep the Sabbath. Every quote-unquote biblical reason. Laws nailed to the cross, all this stuff. And a very committed Christian. Really love this guy dearly. And he and I would talk. Well, we present it in that series, the Prophecies of Hope Lessons, these Bible lessons that I authored. My approach to this is when I study the Bible with someone, I'm not there to make them a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm not there to convert them. That's God's job. My, my job is to help people understand their Bible and to give them the tools. And so I share with people how prophecy goes together, how Daniel 2 unlocks Daniel 7, Daniel 7 unlocks Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. And when I show them how to do this, by the time we hit Daniel 8, They're interpreting the prophecies. They're using the Bible to interpret the prophecies themselves. They're coming to the conclusions. And so when we hit things like the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was changed, we have already shown them from prophecy who changed the Sabbath, the little horn power. And so with this this friend of mine who was attending these meetings, he would come up with all these other reasons why he thought we didn't need to keep the Sabbath. And we would discuss those, and we'd share what the Bible really was saying in those places. But then I always would come back to it, and I'd say, friend, I'd say, Daniel 7, who is the little horn predicted there in Daniel 7? And he would tell me who that person is, that entity is. He'd say, here's who it is. And I'd say, and what does it say there in Daniel 7? I believe it's verse 25. His work would be, well, he would think to change times and laws. And I'd say, and then which law does that entity say it has changed? Well, they say that they have changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And I'd say, friend, this is not my issue. The church says these things. Not just my church, but all the churches say the Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday by this entity. It's a historical fact that was predicted in the Bible. So if God took the time to predict it, it must be pretty important, huh? And he'd say, yeah, 
Yeah. It would just shut him down, shut down all his arguments, just pull the rug out right from under his feet. Didn't know what to say. You know what? I, what? What is he doing now? Is he attending church? Understand he's attending church. His wife was baptized. He's attending church. He's not baptized yet. He was keeping Sabbath. And she's moved now. Was keeping Sabbath. I mean, when he started coming to meetings, he was far from that. He, um, his church saw him leaving their church, coming our way. And he's, he's a big fish. And this guy's a very influential guy. Big fish in town. They saw him leaving. You know what they did? They flew in a professor of theology from their denomination from across the country to town to visit with this guy. And he was going to get, he, this guy was going to tell this fellow why he didn't need to keep the Sabbath. Flew him in. Do you know the one question this man wanted to ask him? The one question was based on Daniel 7.25. Who is this little horn power? And does he really admit to changing the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? That was the only thing that mattered. All these antinomian, the law's been nailed to the cross type questions, all demolished in the face of prophecy, just absolutely leveled. And so, you know, this guy ended up visiting with him. I forget what happened there. I think the guy said, yeah, that's right. That's where the Sabbath was changed. Done deal. You know, prophecy's powerful. It's very powerful. It's illuminating and it opens up the whole Bible. And so if, if you're giving Bible studies, you really want to get into prophecy. If you find it difficult, these are my notes. This is what I take. I actually have this beside my Bible. It tells you what to say, what Bible text to turn to and everything and where to invite people to accept Christ and make decisions. And these are the lessons that you leave with the person. So if you want to learn more, you're serious about this, those are some resources that you can avail yourself of from Seminars Unlimited, uh, Hope Channel, or Amazing Facts. We all offer those. And I've got sheets up here if you want these. But let's have prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that we could spend this time together here, this Sabbath. Thank you for the blessing of the Sabbath hours, the time to just come apart and to feast on your word and to fellowship. Thank you for the Christian family that you've given us that we can share your truth, your love. And Lord, as we've talked here about winsome witnessing, we just want to thank you for your witness to us, that constant ongoing reassurance of your love and your care for us. And may it continue to win our hearts each and every day. And then, Father, make us a channel of your blessings to those around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.